everybody, and welcome to another episode of Natter the Zillennial Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Parent, and we're joined today by Janice Jacobs. Hello, Janice. Hey, everyone. How's it going today? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Good. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what we will be talking about today? Yeah. Um, my name is Janice. I'm currently in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Um, we know each other, me and Natalie, from school. Um, and I just graduated this year, which is pretty sweet now that I have mm. free time. Um, and I guess I'm just really excited about World War II. <laughs> I get really passionate about it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Awesome. I mean, it's a huge topic and kind of important for world history. So mm-hmm. it's, it's great. Let's start from the very beginning. Uh, where does the interest come from? Why did I started this passion? Oh, goodness. I don't even know. I mean... I think because I did elementary school in England mm-hmm. and obviously England was such a huge part of World War II and one that it was like taught a whole lot. Um, so we went through it like every year, every couple of years. And as I got older, it just kind of solidified my interest coming to learn about the ramifications of World War II. Um, mm-hmm. so I think I did a project on it in social in grade 12 or 11 and it just blew my mind <laughs> I, I, I was just like wow this is like it's huge um events so um so yeah it kind of started there and then I picked it back up in university when I was trying to find books to read um because by my fourth year of university I hadn't read a book in about four years <laughs> And so I just went to the library one day and picked up um, a book by this guy called Ben McIntyre about espionage during World War II, and I was instantly hooked. Cool. Okay, I have one question before we talk about espionage because that sounds mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating too. The way that you were taught about World War, about the World Wars um, in England versus in Canada, or what you've heard about it, I guess here. Um, did, were there differences or was it mostly similar since, I mean, we, we were on the same side. Canada was a part of Great Britain and everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I think every country teaches it differently, which is super interesting in itself. Um, I didn't get too much. Hmm, I don't think there was much of a difference because like Canada, I find was more of like a support role yeah. than, than like the main player. So we just basically went with what the Americans and the British were doing. Um, so I, I, you know, I think it would be the same curriculum as what you would learn in England. Cool. I'm, I'm just yeah. glad to know that we're not like doing anything completely off the walls. So. No. I mean, I think there's going to be things that every country like misses from their um, curriculum, so to speak. But you, it's literally impossible to have everything. So <laughs> you can have to pick and choose and it works for most people. So that's totally true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So anyway, back to espionage. I know of spies as in like spy kids, which is super high tech and like, I mean, like early 2000s high tech. But uh, what was real espionage in the World Wars uh, like? What kind of technologies did they have? Who did it? Um, honestly, well, let's start with who did it. Sure. They were usually looking for... Um, like people who could blend into a lot of different situations mm-hmm. um unfortunately because it was the 40s that usually meant like white men <laughs> who were wealthy um and they were recruited by mi5 so in britain i think mi5 is the domestic um branch of intelligence that would be like the fbi 
MI6 would be like the CIA, so that would be foreign intelligence. Um, so usually um, MI5 would be people who rose up through the ranks and be more working class people, um, not as worldly, you know, kind of mm-hmm. more, more of a stereotype. An MI6 operative or agent um, officer would be um, someone who is maybe from a wealthier background, it was very much known as a gentleman's club. So you had to be referred to work in MI6, um, okay. more people to work in MI6. Um, there tends to be um, two different branches of the intelligence. So MI5 and MI6, like I said, but even MI6 is split into the um, domestic, or it's split into the agents in England who are making the plans mm-hmm. and, you know, being handlers and, reporting to different people, coming up with the technology and how, you know, extraction plans, all that stuff. And then there's people actually doing it, um, mostly in the mainland. So mm-hmm. even within the MI6, there's that division of, yes, one side was partying and schmoozing, but they also had the serious, you know, task of bringing people back home that they sent over there. Um, and the other side was mostly in danger, but they still could have fun, you know, with their job. So, yeah. That's so cool that they were able to do it that way. Yeah, so that was mostly who did it. Um, like I, Again, like I said, very male-dominated, but there are a couple of examples of female spies and female officers who did amazing things um, during the war and afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding what they did or how they did it, um, how to describe it? I mean, they were just infiltrating enemy territory. Like, they... They were dropped into France by parachute, usually, um, dead of night. And they just had to find people who would give them the information they wanted. So lots of networking events, lots of um, like social, um, social events and social cues. They'd have their handlers, obviously, who would um, you know, relay the information back to um, the the appropriate department in England and then they'd have to recruit other people to find the information that they needed. So fascinating they didn't necessarily know what the situation was they were just there. Yeah yeah you could kind of say that I mean I'm sure they had some kind of um, intelligence beforehand but obviously what what you're being told and what's on the ground are two different things right so yeah exactly and of course you have you are operating under the threat of death all the time if you're caught so, so the stakes were super high, um, just both on the mainland in England and on the mainland in Europe, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, just a lot of high stakes um, situations, uh, but also a lot of um, partying, <laughs> I guess you could say. Uh, you know, what I've heard is that lots of um, the officers like to schmooze and, you know, you know, network, kind of... Drink together. Drink together, lots of drinking. It was the 40s. <laughs> um, so, so you know, not not all, you know, life and death or, or you know, um, dangerous, but, you know, there was always an element of, you know, what if I'm caught? Yeah, and I suppose it would have been kind of like what the soldiers had, hey? they The spies had their their network of, uh, of peers who, who are also doing the same thing, who maybe we're in the same region as them yeah there we go what kind of technology did they have available to them um surprisingly advanced actually i mean i wasn't able to finish the book before i 
went on this podcast, but there is a um, the Enigma machine that we all know. Yeah. It was ultimately cracked by Alan Turing, but it was given to the French, or it was a French-Polish joint venture, I believe. Please fact check me on that. <laughs> Listeners, yeah. if you find out differently. Um, and then they gave it to the to the British when the Polish when Poland was being invaded. Um, so they managed to get that out in time. But even that Enigma um, technology was long in the making. Like we're talking yeah. since World War One, there's been a code cracking department. Um, and it just kind of evolved from there. So you'd think it was very like um, like primitive compared to what we have now, but um, you know, not not too different in some ways. Totally. Let, let's dive more about uh, into Enigma because I bet there are some listeners who don't know anything about it and haven't seen the Imitation Game. Um, yeah. So Enigma was uh, the code. Was it the code name or the name of the machine? I think it was. It was the name of the German machine. Yes. Yes, that is correct. So Enigma was the name of the German machine um that encoded all the messages so you know um all the messages were sent out through code and essentially the germans modified the factory setting machine to change codes every day which made the british the british's job harder um to crack the code Mm -hmm. so of course um the british spent how long and how many millions of dollars uh, trying to crack this code um, and eventually they got it uh, through the work of Alan Turing and I think in the process Alan Turing created the first computer like <laughs> to it's be an amazing to story oh yeah oh yeah I mean what happened to him afterwards is kind of tragic it's um, so sad considering his his contribution to the war but um but yeah he 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 did a great service and it's it's said that cracking the enigma shorten the war um by at least a couple of years um you know if if not for knowing what the germans were going to do then i i'm, I'm not sure how it would have turned out they were getting these um these coded messages just on radio airwaves and things like that right like it was easy to get the messages it was just mm-hmm. they didn't know what they meant it was converting them yep yeah, yes, yeah. so there was some um you know, I, I'm not even going to go into it. I couldn't tell you how the Enigma machine works. <laughs> um, I'm going to let listeners explain that one. Um, well, listeners, uh, look that one up because I'm not very techie or sciencey. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was all based around code, code names, code books, code phrases, um, call signs. And uh, if anything was wrong with you as an agent, if you were captured and sending a, a message under duress, um, you would have a particular error or mistake making your in your message that would alert your handlers to then you know extract you or you know whatever the situation may be that is so smart Mm -hmm. oh my gosh of course they did that of course they did and I have I don't know I I have a story about that if you'd like to hear Um, yeah let's do it right now let's do it it's called it's called the England England spiel I'm speaking terrible German right now, but essentially um, the England game is what it translates to. And the Germans, in all the stories that I've heard about espionage and how the Germans kind of sucked at it, this, yeah. was, where they, <laughs> this was where they excelled. So 
So Britain sent agents over to the Netherlands for discrete operations. Um, and the first time, I think an agent was caught. However way and whatever reason, they were captured. And a message was sent back to England under duress, under distress. So, and of course, it contained the typo, the mistake that was meant to alert the, the English to a captured officer. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, and I still have not found much information on exactly how this happened, but that typo wasn't caught. Oh, no. When the British got the message to send more agents to this location at this date, they did. They thought the agent, the officer in question, needed backup. More operatives to complete the mission. So, um, of course, agents were sent, more of them were captured, and their codes were broken as well under interrogation. And that happened a couple of times. Like, let me quickly look it up and see if I can um, get an exact number. But it's astounding, like, how many agents were just captured by simply lack of noticing this pre-planned typo, you know? Like, um, uh, for all the the mistakes that Germany did make during the war, which I'm sure we'll get to, um, this was one where they managed to, you know, take out um, a significant number of agents who would have been working against them oh my god that's just awful Mm -hmm. they're they're not expecting these mistakes to happen i guess so to miss one little typo is it's it's literally life and death and they they missed it there you go there you go 54 agents sent from england were captured and 50 were executed oh my god oh that's awful and all of them and wow and they just didn't get their own code it just wasn't caught like there's still um i'm on the wikipedia page right now if that's not cheating (laughs) (laughs) and there's there's just like no um real like um reason that the typo wasn't caught you know what i mean so yeah it's it's not like the uh encryption place was or or the the allied camp was um infiltrated on its own it was just people making human error yeah and that's always the case right like um human error plays such a big part in even the technology of of war and of life that uh, it's it's quite astounding to to realize how many small human actions make up um make up the course of history I mean, you can find that in 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 any kind of history, but um, World War One, World War Two, especially. You know what I mean? Um, very small actions have very big consequences that are just not seen in the moment and are kind of insane to think about, honestly. Yeah, and you can even look between the two wars themselves. World War One, um, they finished the war, or so they thought, and just made the mistake of not demilitarizing the um the uh, german powers and and german allies they they didn't demilitarize and then world war ii happened because they were able to continue with that and continue with that all of those notions and stuff and that in itself is also just a small little mistake mm-hmm. to yeah. huge huge consequences yeah i mean surprise surprise i'm reading a, a book on the second world wars now mm-hmm. and essentially um Germany wasn't as strong as they thought they were, but they were stronger than uh, England, America, and Russia thought they were. So it was kind of an in-between. 
um, and just no one wanted to to enforce the rules around yeah. the Treaty of Versailles, you know, so um, it's kind of the cause of all this mess <laughs> that they got into. That's absolutely crazy. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. This human error. Oh, okay. Let's jump back into uh, spies and the world of espionage. What made a good spy? Of all the ones that you know of, do they have any similar traits amongst them? I think, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is courage. Yeah. You know, it couldn't have been easy to do that. Like, and I'm sure we'd all like to think that we'd make great spies and do like awesome things, but a lot of people crumbled under that pressure. You know what I mean? They either, um, you know, couldn't hack it. They, they decided to, you know, do other things or um, took the easy way out, whatever that means um, in the situation. And it just takes a lot of courage to like do, I don't want to say the right thing, um, but do your job when that job is illegal. <laughs> yeah. And to commit yourself 100% to it, even though it's terrifying. Yeah, because like, let's not forget, like if these agents were captured, they would face torture and death. Mm -hmm. Right. So that that's not a good end to anyone's life. Um, you know, let alone throwing yourself into it. Um, and it was just a constant like threat of, am I being watched? When is the Gestapo going to come for me? When is, you know, when is this plan going to fall through? And so many of the, the, the operations and the information that came uh, through these spies was dependent on other people, mm -hmm. right? So if, if another person failed in their duties, that meant that you had to scramble, right? That was now on you. So it was just like a lot of courage that comes with having that much control and then also being able to let go of that control. Yeah, absolutely. Because they, they'd be maybe waiting for a message and they'd need a driver and a, a baker and a whoever to pass it along or to get the information or to get the, I don't know, item they needed. Like it would take, the spy, I guess, themselves weren't alone. They were just one person in a chain of so many that need to do their job perfectly to succeed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I also think um, like quick thinking being able to pivot and lie very well <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, uh, good qualities. Um, you know, like we said, plans change, things happen, people fall through, people do different things from what they said they were going to do. And you just need to be able to adapt while sticking to the mission, right? Um, if you don't have a driver, how are you going to get there? Um, another quality, you have to then charm someone into giving you a lift. Maybe you have to steal something you have to, you know, um, so, so yeah, just the courage, the quick thinking, um, not the outgoingness. <laughs> uh, what's even the word? Like a very um, outgoing personality to be able to draw people into your vision, um, get them to betray their country, essentially in some cases, for your for your purposes. A lot of charm, a strong liver. <laughs> 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 it was very pervasive drinking in the in the spy community so uh if you didn't hold up under a strong under all that you know all that drink then um you probably weren't gonna make it <laughs> yeah you'd be spilling all of your secrets all over the place every party you can't just be you know you can't be a sloppy drunk you have to you know keep it together at some point so so yeah i think um i think all of those things and one more thing as well 
I was watching, um, her name is Joanna Mendez. Okay. And she was the, for 27 years, she was the, uh, she was with the CIA retiring as the chief of disguise. So she worked in the Cold War and she was in charge of making sure you were unrecognizable, if need be. Mm-hmm. And she essentially said that um, one of the biggest qualities that you need as a spy is to be that outgoing and charming and, um, you know, bigger than life personality. But you can't tell anyone what you're doing so that your ego has to be like non-existent. Um which is very hard for some people to do. You know, they because they're so big and outgoing, they want the credit or they need that validation. But that validation has to come from like you knowing what you what you're doing is the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could go for any area of your life today, right? Not just not just World War Two. So, um, so yeah, so yeah, it has, it's it's a lot of different things, and some of them can conflict. But I think it as a spy you end up learning the right balance because you have to. <laughs> right. They're not, and they're not going to send just anybody behind enemy lines. They're going to make sure that you have every skill honed perfectly yeah. to do it. Exactly. Who are some notable spies of the era that you know of? Um, one of my favorites probably has to be Christina Granville. Um, that's her British name. Uh, she was born Christina Scarbeck um, okay. in Poland, in Warsaw. Um, part of the Russian Empire at the time, but in in Warsaw, and she was brought up like very um, outdoorsy, um, and very like, I want to say masculine, but masculine for the time. You know what I mean? Like she was uh, riding horses, she was hunting, she was um, good with animals. She just had a natural affiliation to those kinds of things, um, and she just did some like awesome stuff. Like she she's quoted as being. Winston Churchill's favorite spy oh wow yeah and yeah she was awesome she um I'm trying to think of specifics she had to get a message across the border from Hungary to Poland across the Hungarian border and she ended up uh skiing there and they almost got caught halfway down the slope um so of course being a great athlete she managed to ski away but i uh, i believe one of her colleagues was um captured and killed um, oh my god yeah so so she managed to do that trek um with very little support you know yeah uh, i believe it was like a, a two or three day trek you know either way um especially in deep snow and in like icy conditions she she did that but she's also she was also um active in the Middle East. Uh, she was active in France as well. Um, and she was just an all-around badass. She, she's just so cool. She sounds absolutely amazing. She's so cool. Um, oh, she was the first female British agent to serve in the field on active war zone territory. Um, and she's the longest serving British female agent. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow, round of applause for her. There you go. (laughs) Sorry, one more thing. This has to be, I totally forgot about this uh, until I read it. This has to be the best thing she's done. Okay. She, there were some agents who were under um, capture and they were due to be executed by the morning. And almost single-handedly, she 
got them out. Like she, she, she met with the Gestapo commander and uh, basically told him that she was a British agent and like sweet talked him essentially either sweet talking or threats <laughs> you know they kind of blur together sometimes yeah. in, the, in, in the fog of war um she essentially just talked talked these other agents out of the execution and then walked right through the front door you know to to escape like it was insane that's amazing that she was able to do it like spies and espionage is not what we think it is. It's not just, oh, like I'm I'm sending secret messages or I'm hacking into a database. Like you have to be, they had to be an athlete. They had to be, mm-hmm. they had to be a snake charmer. Like yeah. everything. They did so much stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's very, very versatile. Do you know what kind of training they went through or if they just, um? well, I, obviously there was training for it. What kind yeah. of training did they do? Um, this is really interesting because Churchill founded the SOE in 1940, and that was the um, original sp- spy organization, I guess. So that was going to deal with all the undercover operations and all the liaising between um, countries and uh, the domestic officers handling them. Um, so the training they went through was quite vigorous. Uh, you had to know how to um, like pick locks. They would provide you with training on that. It was a lot of code. Um, and depending on what kind of agent you were going to be, you had specializations. So there was, um, of course, there's not to use a weapon. There was a specialization for sending messages in Morse code and how fast you had to be <laughs> to do that. Um, there was, uh, you know, obviously some first aid um, in there. And... Um, yeah, just general like survival skills, drop off points, pick up, um, pick up points, how to, you know, create a, a dead drop, so to speak, where you drop something up, someone comes later and picks it up and it has to look seamless. It has to look um, um, as inconspicuous as possible. You know, it can't be a piece of paper on the, on the lamppost. It has to be uh, hidden behind something small enough to, you know, conceal in your um, wing, let's say. Um, and there was a lot of uh, like secrecy in that in that aspect of it. Um, so there was quite a bit of training. Um, if anyone is interested, there is a Netflix show. I'm not sure if it's still on there, but there's a Netflix show called uh, "The New Recruits: Churchill's SOE Agents" or something like that. And it goes through what they had to train. Um, essentially, contestants from today train how they would have trained in. Um, for the SOE. That is so cool. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. They a lot of things <laughs> they had to know just to even survive and then the rest you obviously learn on the job. So Yeah. Yeah. I guess they would give you each individual skill, but there's nothing that's the same as being in a crowd of enemies and having to fake your way out of it. There we go. There we go. Of course preference was given to people who had like um who could speak multiple languages. You know, obviously, if you were going to be stationed in France, French was essential. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And um, in Germany, German was essential. You know, you didn't want to look out of place, even sound. Yeah. So. Do you know anything about how they, um, like, trained people with their accents? Because I know that must have been, I mean, if anybody has seen Inglorious Bastards, 
accents are very important and even mannerisms like in the movie um the american officer holds up his hand to designate mm-hmm. the number three but he does it the american way instead of the german way which is using your thumb forefinger and middle finger mm-hmm. and so he does it the wrong way the germans know that he's an ally officer and they they start a gunfight about it do you know anything about that kind of stuff um you know what i don't but i imagine they had to have had that training in there um for spies that came to england um that's where they got caught because they didn't know how to pronounce certain place names they didn't know like what english tea was or like afternoon tea was it's just small things like that so if the british were catching german agents or um like Dutch agents working for the Germans, mm-hmm. um, they were capturing them based on small mannerisms. I can imagine they would also teach their own agents to, you know, do things the right way in Europe. Yeah, to avoid the things that the enemy is doing. Mm-hmm. Be a bit smarter than them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we've said a few times that the Germans weren't good at espionage. Uh, what are some examples you have of that? Oh my gosh. Um, I mean. I think I just touched on it. They sent agents over to England with minimal training. I mean, um, they <laughs> one instance that I, that I remember reading about vividly and just like laughing and in like shock. <laughs> they sent German agents over with European money in their um, backpacks. So it was very obvious to anyone who had searched them that they were from Germany. I mean, um, small things like that i mean not knowing the landscape not knowing where they were i mean um not being able to pronounce place names correctly that is difficult in england england has a lot of strange uh place names like if you look up um you won't be able to look this up because <laughs> unless you know how it's spelled but worcestershire is that the one that's spelled Wor- Worcestershire? Worcestershire, <laughs> yes, that's how it's spelled. So you just like you, you just don't know that stuff un- until you're in England or you you know England. You know what I mean? Um, mm. Same thing with Leicester. Same thing with there's a place called Frome that's spelled Froom. Um, <laughs> of course, you wouldn't know that until you go to England. <laughs> um, so. So yeah, just like small things like that, they would catch them. Um, and some of the spies, they'd actually convert to double agents. So a bit of a tangent here. The double cross program was uh, initiated by um, Thomas Argyle Robinson, Robertson, known for his tartan pants. That's what he would wear, just like bright red tartan pants. Um, and essentially whatever agents they caught um from france belgium um the netherlands germany working for the germans they would then either execute them or convince them to work for the british as double agents so this happened enough times that they made an entire division out of it and there were a couple of um agents who uh approached the british out of their free will to work wow. with their agent. Um, it was an intense operation. I mean, like everything had to be absolutely perfect. No conflicts of interest, no, you know, um, no uh, conflicting information, all that stuff. It, it couldn't look suspicious. Otherwise, you know, actually, you'd think the Germans would catch on, but they were too busy, like enjoying their 
life outside of Germany. The one, um, <laughs> <laughs> like there's a lot of stories of handlers um, who literally were handlers for the money. You know what I mean? They'd claim their business lunches. They'd claim their drinks on expenses. They would claim hotel rooms for their mistresses on expenses. They weren't really bothered with the actual job. They just liked the freedom of being outside of their home country and being able to like charge all their money to high command in Germany, you know? Um, yeah. so, so a lot of information, a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of information just got like bypassed bypass them so to speak so they weren't really in the loop um regarding what the agents were doing or who they were seeing you know in the same way that other handlers would be that's a really really solid point that even just yeah i'm trying to think of how to word this i guess not everybody who was part of the axis power countries was a nazi was for that stuff they just mm-hmm. happened to live there and like just like now not everyone then was political some people just wanted to get out of it alive and do their thing so it would make sense that a lot of german officers are like whoa screw this i like might as well become a double agent or i might as well just claim these expenses and you know screw hitler he's gonna pay for my mistress's apartment there because- we go like some people were just people trying to make it through yeah no definitely and i mean that's that's one thing we have to understand about germany is that we like to categorize categorize them as all nazis but um i mean propaganda is powerful and some people just aren't bothered to look past the propaganda we see that today right um you know not everyone necessarily agreed with hitler but I'm sure not everyone wanted to die in a concentration camp either. Yeah. Um, and there's just like a very fine line of of what was acceptable, what was not, what could get you thrown into a camp, what would get you exiled, all that stuff. So, um, yeah, some people just didn't care. We're like in it just for the money. <laughs> Other people who took it a bit more seriously, but, you know, whether they were competent or not is not really up to me to say. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Do you know how they decided they could trust um, a German or other officer who wanted to become a double agent? I'm getting like vague memories of reading that section in the book. The book I'm talking about is called Double Cross by Ben McIntyre. I highly recommend you read it, anyone who's listening and you, Nat. Um, Yes, absolutely. It's so good. It's a fiction piece, um, but it reads like a novel. I was just like cackling the whole time through it. It's so funny. Um, let's see. Yeah. So um, your question was, how did they flip these agents over? So in the beginning of World War Two, there was spy mania. Like everyone could be a spy. You know, like that um, loose lips sink ships. Mm-hmm. That was what they were worried about. So there were posters everywhere being like, don't gossip, don't talk about the war. If you, you know, like, just don't say anything. Um, because they thought spies were everywhere, just like Joe. They thought the Germans were more powerful, powerful than they actually were. Mm-hmm. In reality, um, between September and November of 1940, few of them, fewer than 25 agents arrived in the country. 
they were mostly Eastern European and they were all just like badly trained. Oh. <laughs> so they couldn't spy even if they wanted to. <laughs> um, and of course, if they were Eastern European and not German, they weren't really motivated to do the job the same way a German officer would be. So some of them may have turned themselves in, some of them may have just disappeared and fucked off <laughs> into the distance, you know, and just like never come back. Um, so, and a couple of them were German agents already that told the Germans they were going to become British agents and double cross for the Germans, but ended up double crossing for the British instead. Wow. Yeah. So, like, there was the book Double Cross that we're speaking about earlier tells a story of quite a few agents who just approached the British and was like, hey, I'm already spying for the Germans. Do you want to just tell tell you what they're telling me? <laughs> 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 Pretty much. That's how they worked. Um, my favorite story from this book is this one agent from Spain. His name is Agent Garbo. He went by. And his real name is Juan Pujol Garcia. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, essentially, he approached the British a couple times. Um, and the British were like, no, we don't need anyone. But once this program, the double cost program, got up and running, he approached them again and they were like, hey, like, I'm already kind of doing the work. Like, do you want to just see what I've written here? And turns out he had the gift of the gab, which meant he could bullshit his way, like, to anything. Um, he ended up writing false reports for a network of 80 fake agents to the Germans. So the Germans thought he had 80 agents or so, um, you know, reporting all this stuff to him, but it was just him writing as these people, like hundreds of false reports a month um, to the Germans. The Germans just ate it up. (laughs) He, I think he's like one of the only people, if not the only person that received an iron cross from the Germans. Oh my God. The highest, the highest award the Germans could give, and they gave it to a double agent. Oh, he was good. <laughs> he was so good. Yeah, he was a Spanish spy. He was very good. And um, I mean, uh, the story of D-Day, I'm sure everyone knows landings on the beaches and um, how that went down, but the espionage was quite a big part of it. The, the panzer tanks that were situated more south of the beaches um, and in southern France were actually held up for about seven days because uh, Germany trusted these double-cross agents much more than they trusted the reports from um, the beaches. That's how, that's how strong the connection was. That's how strong um, the information was. So while you know some of their own people uh, the Germans were telling them that, hey, like the situation is kind of bad, you know, we need more reinforcements. The double cross agents were like, hey, no, like the invasion is not for another couple of days. You know, it's not really that bad. It's just the, um, it's a diversion. We're going to strike somewhere else. You know, don't go there. We're going to, um, we're going to, you know, trick you into, you know. So then the Panzer Division that was situated in South France, the south of France, where a supposed attack was going to happen, was held up for about seven days, about a week, from even getting orders to move up to the north of France. That's insane. Yeah. So can you imagine if the Panzers had moved so quickly? You know, we might not have, we as in the Allies, um, 
might not have won the war. That that D-Day operation might not have been successful. And history would have been completely different. Yeah, the outcome would have been, and it's just because of the espionage. Like espionage is so powerful. If you think you have an in to someone else's thought process, you know that's that gives you an advantage. Yeah, whether it's real or not, you know, a perceived advantage, um, and that's what the Germans thought they had. So they just went along with it, um, and ultimately, their lack of uh, espionage infrastructure failed them. Yeah. I can I can see why they would think it was wise to believe their spies rather than the soldiers on the ground because it is easy to be fooled by a, a facade of a mighty army or something like that mm-hmm. or like oh they get one big ship and we think we're under attack maybe not oh my god what's happening mm-hmm. like there's a lot of confusion with your actual eyeballs yeah. but when you think you have somebody who has details about what an actual plan is, mm-hmm. you, of course you would trust that more than a bunch of people confused on a beach. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah no, for sure. And like, um, let's not forget that Hitler by this point was like going crazy. He was essentially being drugged by his doctor um, and ordered like a non-retreat um, order. How do you say that? <laughs> he, he wouldn't let his soldiers retreat, right? So even if it was going really badly, we saw this in Russia when he invaded, even if it was going really badly, there was no way out. You just had to like die there or be captured as a German soldier. So, you know, um, Hitler may have perceived his, his soldiers as maybe weak-minded or weak-willed, um, very flam buoyant in their descriptions Mm -hmm. because of his trusted network of spies this is blowing my mind I didn't realize it was like that because we hear so much about the soldiers and like of course we do it's they did amazing important work Mm -hmm. but there's always so much behind the scenes behind every operation behind every industry that we just don't hear about nearly enough Mm -hmm. Um, so there was an operation called operation mincemeat and this was a British operation in 1943 to throw the Germans off the scent of their invasion of Sicily. So the, the British were going to invade Sicily. That was their first um, invasion of the mainland Europe. They went through Sicily, they went up Italy and um, started attacking the German forces that way. Now, the, the British couldn't just invade Sicily, you know, there were mm-hmm. lots of factors against them, including uh, the recent German infiltration of Italy, I guess. They, the German soldiers were stationed in Italy, essentially. And they tried to fill them off the scent by, <laughs> by creating a fake officer and dumping his body in the sea. Oh, no. <laughs> with letters um, stating that they were going to invade in... Greece and Sardinia. So these, so the Germans were led to believe that Britain was going to invade in Greece and Sardinia instead of Sicily. Now this fake officer was a Welshman. He had been dead for about three months by the time he was dropped in the sea. And the British took his body, essentially, um, from a morgue, created a fake name, fake life, fake... Um, mistress fake uh education like the whole backstory 
and they essentially staged a plane crash off the coast of Spain. Now, there are a couple countries in Europe that were neutral, and I say that with quotation marks, um, because there was a lot of spy activity in those countries. So ah. it was supposed to be neutral, but it was a spy hub, right? There were some Middle Eastern countries that were supposed to be neutral, but it was a spy hub. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. I think Switzerland was supposed to be neutral, but guess what? It was a spy hub. <laughs> and so so they knew that if they um, dropped it off on the southern, south, eastern coast um, of Spain, that was a like a, a more German prominent area, they knew it would get to the Germans eventually, and they would believe the words of an officer. Yeah. So, uh, yes, that was my favorite, because they just used a dead body. They just used a dead body dropped from the ocean. The Germans were like, oh, this looks legit. <laughs> and they took it and ran with it, and they were expecting an invasion in, in Greece and were totally caught off guard for the invasion of Sicily. Wow. That yeah. is, okay, that is the most suspicious thing in the world. Like, if a dead body washed up and gave me all the information I ever wanted, wouldn't you find that a bit suspicious? I mean, the British were very good at their crops. The, obviously, they knew it couldn't be, like, we're going to invade right here. And it couldn't be the only letter either because that's just a plant, right? Right. There was more than one. Yeah, so they had a letter from his mistri- from his wife or fiancé um, tucked in his coat. They had a letter from another general you know, talking about other official army business. And then they hinted at a landing in Greece and Sardinia in the third letter. So between the information, of course, one was just personal. The second one kind of, you know, gave them a couple of crumbs here and there. The third one, put together with the second, kind of gave them the, a better picture. Right. Okay, that is way less sus. Never mind. Yeah. I retract my statement. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and there was there was other paraphernalia in his pockets, um, just to make it look real. But he was dead before he hit the water. So <laughs> that is so smart. Ah, I love this. If you guys want to learn more about this, the book is called Operation Mincemeat, and it's an entire book about um this whole operation by Ben McIntyre. And they're also making a movie about it. I just heard. Ooh. Called Operation Mincemeat. So um, I'm really excited for that. It's a super gross name for a really cool. Right? morbid <laughs> operation right yeah yeah so so yeah just really cool stories there um, i wonder if, oh there's another story i like oh let's do it um and i don't know the full details of this uh but essentially germany had nuclear weapons or the ability to make nuclear weapons before the allies did okay and the only reason um they were stopped from creating these weapons was five Norwegian guys who managed to sink a boat in the middle of a lake. Interesting. Go on. That was the, that was the only reason that they decided that, that the Germans didn't have nuclear weapons before the Allies did. Um, the British had tried to previously bomb a, a facility making this heavy water, so to speak, um, a component needed in the, in the making of nuclear weapons at the time. And had missed, like, terribly. They struck a town, like, 20 miles away. It just wasn't accurate. It was a whole fiasco. Like, they, they didn't do a great job. Um, they tried to they tried to bomb a couple times. They just, like, failed <laughs> each time. So they decided, you know what? This facility is in the Norwegian Alps. Um, Norway was supposed to be, was it a neutral country? Or was it invaded? I don't know. Yeah, I can't quite remember. 
But anyway, they recruited Norwegian agents because it was in the Norwegian um, mountains. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, this is remote. So you have a couple of days to get in, set some bombs, and get out. And you cannot be captured because obviously, you know, you'll die. Uh, so they did that. They went to the facility. They got out. They set the bombs. Turns out the shipment that had been uh, set to leave um, after the bombs had exploded, like, you know, they were supposed to be there when the bombs went off, had left earlier. Uh-oh. Yeah. So they had to, like, find out where these, um, where the shipment was. They got the routes and ended up um, having to, like, sink the boat that the heavy water was on to um, to stop, you know, that transportation happening. Yeah. Uh, because the original facility was blown up too, I think it was the only one, it crippled the Germans' ability to make nuclear weapons. And this was as early as, like, 1943. So could you imagine by the end of the war having nuclear weapons in the Germans' hands? We would have actually had a nuclear war. Yeah, there you go. And no one knew the ramifications at the time, right? Um, so it was just like five Norwegian guys standing between Germany and their nuclear weapons. That was it. Well, thank you, Norway. <laughs> thank you, Norway. Oh my God. That's... Yeah, I, I just love World War II media. Um, so if you can find it, it was on Netflix before, but there's a TV show called The Heavy Water War, which goes into the operation details, but it's like a drama, drama series. It's really cool. The way things happened, it all just could have gone so differently at every turn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And just like small decisions had to be made that kind of led to the bigger stuff. Like there was one German officer who was executed as part of the July plot. Um, So he was already like against Hitler, but he was working as a high level espionage agent kind of on the German side. So he was taking information um, analyzing it and seeing if it was important or what wasn't important. And I believe for Operation Mincemeat, um, he received information that could have alerted the Germans to the plot that the mm-hmm. British were, you know, um, creating, but decided to just, like, not bother passing it on. Wow. Why would he help the Germans <laughs> if he was against, you know, Nazi Germany? He, he just uh, decided, nope, that's not important. I'm going to make it not important. Just washed his hands of it and moved on. Pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, he had control. He had the position to do it in. Um, He had the power to do that. Why not? Crazy. It's all just the decision of one person sometimes. There you go. There you go. So that's that's really what fascinates me about World War II more than anything. It's like all these small, tiny decisions just emerge into this huge um, fiasco. I have one more story (laughs) that's not necessarily related to the espionage, but it it kind of, I think, shows my point. So um, during World War II, Finland fought three wars. It was two wars against the Russians and then one war against the Germans. Um, And upon winning the war against the Russians, Hitler saw that and was like, okay, if a tiny nation like Finland can beat the Russian army, then we can do it. Mm -hmm. You know, like, <laughs> of course we can. So, so Germany, that's one of the reasons that Germany invaded Russia during World War Two. Well, yeah, World War Two was because a tiny nation like Finland had already beat Russia. Why couldn't they with all their, you know, army and might and tanks? 
course, you all know how that turned out. <laughs> what an ego did to them. Oh, my right? goodness. It was, and they had the, the Russians cornered for a while um, in Stalingrad, I think. It was the siege of Stalingrad. And they had the Russians cornered for a while, but they refused to believe that the bane, the bane of their operation here, is that they refused to believe that the Russians, who they saw as um, inferior to them, were able to orchestrate a huge plan to come save their own people. And that's yeah. exactly what the Russians did. They managed to gather a million soldiers um, and provide backup to the soldiers who were stuck in Stalingrad. Um, and the Germans just had no idea the entire time. They had no clue what was happening, um, which I you know, can suspect was work of espionage <laughs> agents as well. Yeah. But that's how um, Germany was driven out of Russia was just by this huge display of force by the Russian army congregating together with no prior knowledge by the Germans and pushing them out. Amazing. Mm-hmm. I've, I've kind of seen a theme through history. Like, even if you have elephants, even if you have 20th century technology, don't invade Russia. Don't invade <laughs> Russia. Just don't do it. <laughs> it's not going to good look. It's not going to turn out for you. <laughs> it's just not going to work but, uh, yeah but I think the, the the theme through all of this is that um, the Germans just underestimated everyone around them like because mm-hmm. they were so superior they thought they were the best they were like oh these people can't do what we can do oh these people don't have the capabilities to do this when in fact that was the entire point I mean you know the British undermined them with the espionage the Russians undermined them militarily the French came back with the resistance. I mean, it's just, yeah. <laughs> Don't undermine your enemy. Yeah, you've got to you've got to be prepared to win if you're going to go out to war, I guess. There we just go. Put all of your resources out there. There we go. <laughs> and like I said, the espionage is a huge part of it. It shortened the war by some some people estimate estimate. Yes, there are estimates <laughs> that um, the creation of the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, and uh, espionage activities on the mainland reduced the length of the war by about three to five years. What would we have done without it? Honestly. Wow. And then the SOE, um, the training and the structure of the SOE uh, became the basis for a, like very many um espionage agencies so for example the cia was based on the soe um that's the only one i know but yeah because um, um, i read a book about that as well but um but yeah it was used as the basis of a lot for a lot of other agencies um especially when they were building up their their espionage activities after the war and into the cold war mm-hmm. wow no history. No history. I freaking love history. World War II has to be like one of my favorite parts of history because it's so intricate and complex. And it shaped so much that we are now living today even. And then now we're living it today, the ramifications. So Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share before we close? Um, not really. I'm, you kind of dream me of all my stories here. Um, or any thoughts. I would just say like history is not just for the past you know like we've already learned so many lessons for today just by looking at this one part of history right so um I would encourage everyone to just go look into 
something in the past, whether it be the Romans, whether it be, you know, the Egyptian Empire, whether it be Russian Revolution, you know, history is really cool. And if you can find something that really captivates your imagination, then you will have like endless possibilities, imagination, reading material. It's all there for you. That is absolutely lovely. Thank you so much, Janice. This has yes. been fascinating yes. and exciting. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I thought I would just be rambling for like <laughs> an hour about my favorite spies or whatever. But um, no, but this was really fun. I'm so glad I got to talk about this and I'm so glad to connect with you again. So uh, thank you so much for being on. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us in another episode of Natter the Zillennial Podcast. Take care of yourself this week. Go check out those books that Janice talked about because they sound fascinating. And have a good week. 